Dr. Francois, I mean, there are many who are saying that, frankly, the Biden administration should have acted sooner and faster, that hundreds of billions of dollars uh, has been put at risk because the Houthis have held uh, this area in the Red Sea um, at ransom. Sorry, so just let me get this straight, Yalda. So we are bombing the poorest, one of the poorest countries in the world that has been under a humanitarian blockade. There has been famine. These people have been decimated. And we are bombing them because a couple of guys in dinghies in support for the Palestinians who are having a genocide committed against them. They're objecting to that and we're bombing them. Come on now. I mean, well, this it, is just an insane world for us to even think. I'm so sorry your Amazon packages are delayed. I really am. Like, I wish mine came on time. But, you know, genocide, guys, genocide. There are two mothers a day dying in Gaza right now. It's 109 days into a conflict in which a humanitarian crisis has been declared to the world day but by in, the way, day out. By the way, Dr. F Guy Nunes uh, <laughs> on the theme of our, our interview uh, coming up later in the program with Seamus Malifex Alley. Um, Malikafz Alley, sorry. Um, and yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I think that's pretty simple. Uh, uh, and the sincerity of the Houthis, other people who think, well, actually, they're just doing this opportunistically. It's like, we'll take the opportunity away from them. Would mm -hmm. be my uh, my advice, and uh, and we'll, again, we'll get into that with Seamus. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, we'll get into that in, in a little bit. But I will tell you, Matt, it's pretty wild um, that so much of both American and uh, UK politics are all about these kind of deals with the devil, right? Um, putting up two things against each other. Um, how much violence and, and pain and suffering uh, are you willing to put up with is basically the question of a lot of American politics uh, these days. Um, but we're stoked uh, to be here with all of y'all, Left Reckoning 154. Uh, we're going to be talking with Seamus, as Matt just said. And a little bit later, we're going to be talking about an attack on American students um, up in New York City, something that I think needs a lot more coverage. Um, when we talk about... Uh, <clears throat> Um, you know, when when we talk about uh, you know a lot of these these things that are happening all across the globe, it's a kind. Of, it's important for people to sort of recognize that this stuff is coming to streets near you. Uh, the security state, uh, the attempts to silence people. Uh, these have been things that have been going on for a long time in this country, and they've only been intensifying. Um, and we have, unfortunately have more examples of that coming up. Uh, later and as always folks don't forget to join us in the post game patreon.com slash left reckoning to get to that uh, matt and i have uh, some fun things to take y'all down as well as taking some calls and questions but before we get there matt should we get uh to our kind of optimistic story to start with yeah you know i mean this is the thing with especially with the way sean and fane has been performing as leader of the uaw uh yeah like you say uh, electoral politics not great now the sort of thing where if you were asked if you had it or would hit it, uh, you should probably say had it. Um, <laughs> I think so. Uh, just, just at least for the moment, I would just say, um, until maybe um, ethnic cleansing genocide stops. But uh, yeah, uh, go ahead, David. 
No, I mean, <laughs> I want to be optimistic here. I just, as as anybody who's trying to build some kind of counter block to the, the centrist power of like the Democratic Party, right? We're just talking like progressive politics versus like centrist politics. I can't imagine a worse time uh, for members of, of the squad, members of the progressive block to be deciding that this is the moment to start rallying behind uh, Mr. Joe Biden. But luckily, uh, we have uh, a lot more movement outside of, uh, directly outside of electoral politics, and that's with the union movement. And before we get into some of this exciting news, I'm sure a lot of people have seen, uh, I wanted to note one thing uh, from Sean Fain's uh, speech to the UAW in Washington, D.C. over the weekend, um, and that is just why it is so damn important for uh, the left and particularly for socialists to be embedded, involved in, and working within uh, the union movement. Um, because not only is that where our power lies, um, it's also uh, possible for us to achieve things like this here. You know, as I said last Monday, we celebrated Martin Luther King Day. And what Dr. King taught us is that the fight for economic and social justice is not bound by space or time. We don't stop our fight for justice at the workplace. We don't stop our fight for justice because it's not the right time. When and where there's a war, whether it's Vietnam or in Gaza, we call for peace. <laughs> and you know it's not so hard to respond to that stuff it turns out you know after after we talk to Shane, we're going to get into what's happening to joe biden in manassas virginia uh, up to 13 interruptions of people calling for a ceasefire and instead of ignoring those people or being patronized to them you could say yeah you're right actually that is something <laughs> you should work toward and then you could put the offices of the presidency toward that mm -hmm. i mean that's what i was going to say it's like man it's a much nicer situation to be able to hear people calling for a ceasefire now and be like, hell yeah, let's go. And instead not, of <laughs> And not you're ruining this for me. Yeah. And not you're you're you being moved by your conscience to disrupt <laughs> this event is fucking things up for me. Is, it, is like, a problem for my politics, my yeah, my, my political yeah. project here? Yeah, no. Luckily that's not the case uh, within the UAW today. And as we always know, let's uh, you know, remember that the reason that Sean Fain is standing where he's standing today and the reason that there was this victory is not because of the individual will of one person, but because of a concerted effort for years uh, to democratize the UAW and then finding that commitment within the UAW to sustain itself in one of the most significant strikes we've seen in recent times to reorganize that union and now to do things like fighting for the working class as a whole and standing up for the people in Gaza. But I mean, let's get to this exciting thing. And you know, this isn't news necessarily. This is something that has been uh, announced and applied before, uh, but Sean Fain is very explicit about it. And uh, I, I want to take a moment to sort of talk about why it's significant and what's important about it. And what we're going to talk about here is the general strike. And we'll play the Sean Fain clip in just one second. Um, but I just wanted to say something up top. Because this is a kind of moment, I think, that the left has to sort of make a choice in this country. What kind of left uh, do we want to be? 
there are already people who are writing kind of think pieces and, and things like that. Look, no judgment. It's interesting to investigate. But things about like the end of the millennial left, the end of this movement, right? Uh, we are seeing difficult moments where, um, you know, for example, the budget struggle within the Democratic Socialists of America, um, a lot of people falling out of politics. Even though we've seen this mass mobilization around Palestine, uh, the feeling that maybe mass politics isn't something that we're going to be doing anymore. Um, and there'll be, we'll have more on that uh, later. But this is a moment I think that's very clear for the left in the United States is to ask yourself the question is like, what kind of left uh, do we want to be? Do we want to be a movement that looks towards ourselves, that's insular? that's engaged in sort of arguing with one another? Um, or do we want to be a, a movement that is very much looking outside, looking at doing the work of mass politics? And what we're seeing from the UAW, I think, is an example of a kind of counter strategy uh, to some of the uh, kind of more boring and tedious aspects of, of being on the left. Um, so to bring all that up is, is to say, general strike is something that has been brought up all the time by people online. And it's something that is typically done with a meme or a graphic or a hashtag um, and not any of the kind of rootedness um, in, in, in working class organizations, rootedness in, in reality or commitment or capacity to actually follow through on it, right? It's a dream, it's an aspiration. Um, and uh, in, 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 rather than actually a strong claim of working class power, it shows the kind of desperation and disorganized nature of the American left. This is different. Uh, this is actually somebody in, in a position of influence and power talking about that. So let's play that and we have a little bit more uh, coming up here. But here is uh, Sean Fain uh, laying out <clears throat> the call for general strike. Something that's not talked about a lot, but it's very significant, is we set a new contract deadline for May the 1st, 2028, May Day, International Solidarity Day. We did this for two reasons. I've always thought in my walk as a union rep that September was the worst time in the world to be going out on strike because sales start lagging when we get into the winter months. May made a hell of a lot more sense, but it also made sense to do it in a unified approach. We got to get back to the days. We got to pay for our sins of the past. Back in 1980, when Reagan at the time fired the PATCO workers, everyone in this country should have stood up and walked the hell out. We missed the opportunity then, but we're not going to miss it in 2028. That's the plan. We want a general strike. We want everybody walking out just like they do in other countries. And that's, that's huge right there. And, you know, for people who might not be as familiar, younger folks, uh, when when Reagan uh, shut down the the air traffic controllers, that was a fundamental moment, a fundamental shift uh, in American capitalism, and and signified a, a decline um, in in labor organizing. I mean, union density in this country, uh, something that we're still dealing with the after effects today. So, you know, not only is Sean Fain talking about organizing the working class as a whole, taking this big step here, 
Um, it's also sort of rooted in that historical struggle, which I find to be very, very inspiring. So l- let's just talk about this a-, a little bit, because this is something that should really be getting you excited. If you are on the left, if you want to see change in this country, uh, hearing the UAW putting forward an actual strategy for how to achieve something like a general strike uh, compared to the kind of uh, calls out to the wind that we have heard in the past, right? When Donald Trump was elected, um, other times in, in, in recent history where people just sort of say, oh, we need a general strike. We need a general strike. Here is a, a, a union leader coming after a, a massive victory, actually laying out a kind of framework here um, that I think should be something that should really inspire folks and actually encourage people to get more and more involved, not less involved in the labor struggle and in the labor movement. Now, he says there, uh, what we should be doing in, in the United States is following the example of other countries um, in, uh, in, in going on general strike. And I wanted to talk about just two examples here, uh, or two points here. One is, you know, I think one of the most classic examples in the United States is France, right? France is sort of seen as this wild country. They always sort of joke whenever there's a general strike in France or ma- massive strike in France. Oh, the French workers love to protest. They love to protest. Um, you know, one thing that I think a lot of people don't realize about France is union density in France is about the same as America's. They actually don't have uh, the union density that you might expect um, them to have in the private sector um, to be able to pull this off. Well, why uh, are you know why do the French do what they do? Part of it is certainly a kind of political culture um, in the way that the French unions engage in, in, in politics and with the working class as a whole. Um, but two is because in the United States of America, the ruling class in this country was so afraid of the disruption and the power that comes from a general strike that they passed as a part of the National Labor Relations Act, Section 8, uh, which bars labor organizations um, from, quote, uh, <clears throat> labor organizations are not allowed to use or support secondary boycott practices because Congress uh, fears the instability it may cause to the economy and the effects on unaffiliated, unaffiliated secondary parties, right? So in, in the United States, the ability to go on a solidarity strike on a secondary strike is illegal uh, according to the National Labor Relations Act. Now, that's an important factor to note, um, certainly, and that's also why the UAW is doing what they're doing, Right saying, hey, let's let our contracts expire at the same time so yep. we're all on strike at the same time to sort of get around that, right? So it just happens to, yeah, it just just make the season when you want it as opposed, yeah, to get around that law. Because as you say, like, what's going on in Sweden with regards to Tesla, where mm-hmm. Elon was unable for a while to get license plates to his folks because the postal union said, we're not going to deliver those. So now they have to do a special workaround. And it's also um, ginning up all the unions in the other countries um, that and really the the main thing that capitalists like Elon have to do at that point is argue for the politicians to come in and say that's not allowed <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's such and that which is what they have done here. No, totally. And I will just note this though, and I, I so and I, I admire and I agree with the UAW strategy. I think it's a great way to build up the momentum around this. But I think as as most people who who study this and understand labor politics in this country and also internationally know that at a certain point you just need to have a fighting spirit and all the all the things that the labor movement has won were illegal at one time or another right um I mean, this isn't some kind of willy-nilly uh you know charge the line call from some guy on the outside it is just a fundamental reality that like there will have to be moments where people start pushing up against these kind of things what the uaw is is calling for i think is correct um but it just is a sort of understanding that like we also just can't 
as a as a rule anymore except oh well this rule says this so we're not going to engage in certain kind of strategies now that comes with massive risks and this is the big thing that i want to to get out here is that you know one of the reasons that the call for a general strike was so frustrating uh, for me in the past when people just sort of did it willy-nilly with no connection to the labor movement or anything like that is that general strikes um, in the united states have been met uh, with massive violent crackdowns um, in fact, in 2017, um, Alex uh, Gorovich wrote a great piece in Jackman uh, called You Can't Fake It, where he, he lays out uh, some of the historical examples of what's happened when we've had these mass strikes in this country, um, from the general strike in San Francisco of 1934, uh, which, again, quoting from uh, Gorovich's piece, developed out of a longshoreman strike, led to running battles with the police, National Guardsmen, setting up machine gun nests and tanks for strike suppression, and a number of deaths. We've talked on this program about the Battle of Blair Mountain, the St. Louis Commune, the Harlan County strikes, and as most people know, uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Uh, what was he doing? What was he talking about at, at that time? He was encouraging um, people to organize the unorganized and encourage striking sanitation workers to escalate the strikes that they were on. It's not an accident that he was killed shortly after that. So when you call for something like a general strike, when you call for that kind of significant break and fight with capital, you are calling for people to put tremendous amounts of of, of, of their lives, um, of their comfort, of their safety at risk. And you damn um, well better have some kind of plan, some kind of organization or some kind of capacity to support people through that kind of thing. It's not just something that you just call for. And now I don't say that to dissuade people um, from, from, you know, from wanting these kind of things. I want these things too, but to really consider the seriousness of the fight and what it means to call for it, which is why what we are seeing right now from Sean Fain and the UAW actually organizing around it, coming up with strategies and plans around it versus just sort of this idea that like, all right, sent out a tweet, um, you know, made a call here. People are just going to show up. No, this is the kind of thing that takes significant oriented uh, and grounded organizing uh, to be able to achieve. And it's a damn exciting thing. And it's a, this is a call for the left, I think, to get very serious about embedding itself, participating in, um, and, and, and protecting and fighting with and for the labor movement in this country. Yeah, and actually, I mean, this really ties into some of our more frivolous uh, topics like Dave Rubin, right, and the IDW, which is like ideas, ideas, mm -hmm. ideas, ideas. That d disembodied ideas are not that interesting. When you take those ideas and you begin to in, uh, influence institutions like the UAW with them mm -hmm. uh, and you start having like leadership and rank and file that a look at oh, when we're going to end our contract so we can sync up with other uh, parts of the labor movement and also how can we use um, the platform that us being organized gives us to speak about something like slaughter in Gaza um, that is, that's really when ideas get interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, so friends, I mean, we'll be, uh, we'll obviously be covering this. Um, but I think more than anything, just in closing, I think this is a time for the left to really look at itself and to consider what its value and purpose is. Is the purpose producing mass politics, supporting working class people as they gain more power, um, or being a kind of insular uh, self-obsessed and self-interested movement. Um, I hope that we take that first option and not the second. Um, and this is a good way to pursue that first option instead of the second. Absolutely. 
Should we go to our interview here? Yeah, Seamus Malakafzali, a great writer, uh, both on Substack, also at the Baffler Magazine, and uh, Seamus Malik on uh, on Twitter. We'll put those uh, links in uh, the comment or in the description if they're not already there. Um, good uh, discussion. We'll come back and uh, see how Joe Biden is doing with uh, voters of with like a pulse. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I have to save that until we get back. So here's Seamus, folks. Uh, see you in a little bit. Welcome, Left Reckoners. I'm Matt Leck. With me, as always, David Griscom. Hello, David. Hey, brother. And uh, joining us now is writer-journalist Seamus Malakafzali. Uh, you can see his bylines in Baffler Magazine and also read his work at Seamus-Malakafzali.com, where you can read his most recent piece, uh, Coalition of the Starvers, uh, where he writes, the United States and the United, uh, the United States and United Kingdom have struck scores of targets inside Yemeni territory held by Houthi-led government in an attempt to halt its blockade in the Red Sea. Uh, just a little bit of background uh, here, maybe to start with Seamus. Um, who are, what is the Houthi movement? Who are the Houthis uh, within Yemen, uh, uh, just to start with? I mean, the Houthi movement, uh, which is officially known as uh, Ansar Allah, um, is a group that was formed as a form of... Um, Shia revivalism uh, against what they saw as malign Saudi Salafist uh, ideology that was permeating throughout Yemen uh, in the uh, early 2000s. Um, it grew uh, from there and in uh, the early 2010s it grew enough in military force that it was able to take the Yemeni capital Sana'a and from there it was able to uh, take over a significant percentage of uh, northern Yemen to the point where now it controls, I believe, around 80% of the uh, population of Yemen uh, lives within their territory. Um, it, it's an Islamist organization, but it is far more big tent in its ideology than, uh, for example, uh, Hezbollah or um, uh, the current Iranian system, for example. Uh, the Yemeni socialists back the Houthis and they're, they're accepted within that movement, um, which is not true for Iran, for instance. Um, it, it, it tries to bring all of these people uh, under uh, a singular kind of goal, um, and it recognizes um, pragmatism over, uh, I guess the right word would be, um, Ideological uniformity, uh, I think, is the operative word here. Um, they've set up a new government. They've set up, um, you know, with all kinds of different uh, institutions. It operates that government, um, and uh, it, it, this, the characterization of the Houthis as, I think, sort of um, rebels and sandals, I, I think, is the common perception. Uh, I don't think it never made sense, but it it absolutely no longer makes sense uh, now. 
Yeah, and kind of in the state of their conflict with the, uh, Saudi Arabia, which is, I think, where the Houthis came on uh, most Americans' radar. Like, tell us about this that conflict, uh, maybe leading up to uh, October seventh, and how that shows maybe the capabilities of the Houthi movement. Yeah, I mean, when they captured Sanaa, um, obviously this was a huge uh, issue that. Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia obviously was going to take issue with this, I mean, because the Houthi movement, um, while not controlled by Iran, obviously enjoys bagging from the Islamic Republic. And it was the perception within the Saudi intelligentsia um, that this was akin to uh, something like, you know, the communist revolution in Cuba, not ideologically, but in the sense that there was this ideological ally to Iran that was now directly on Saudi Arabia's borders. Um, Jamal Khashoggi um, characterized it like the expansion of Nazism. It, it was of that importance to Saudi Arabia. So they formed a multinational coalition to counter it. Um, and then they embarked on a massive troop deployment uh, bombing campaign that lasted for years and years and years. Um, it, it brought famine, it brought disease, it brought uh, significant destruction to Yemen, which was already the poorest country in the Middle East, remains so. And out of that, um, Ansar Allah has emerged much more military powerful, um, much more uh, coherent as a structure, um, much more capable. Uh, much, yeah, much more of a, a united front. Um, it's it was a failure in pretty much every sense of the word, and it led to, as a result of the Iran Saudi rapprochement that has been going on, it led to you know high level meetings between the Houthis and uh, the Saudi government in a way that would have been entirely uh, uh, incomprehensible, um, ununderstandable. Um, only a few years ago. Yeah, and you know the reduction that we get a lot in mainstream press is uh, Iran-backed. So that characterization, how how do we adequately uh, uh, address that? I mean, Iran sends them, you know, um, military, uh, you know, weapon blueprints. They send them support. They they obviously enjoy. Um, if we're talking about just at a base level, they enjoyed massive rhetorical support from the Iranian government. Uh, they see them as integral uh, factions of the acts of resistance of that foreign policy bloc. Um, but the characterization of, of being a proxy force implies that their opposition to Israel and their opposition to Saudi Arabia um, kind of moves and falls at the uh, Iranian government's will. Um, but my, at least at least in my mind, a proxy force would follow uh, their parent government through anything. And I can't envision a scenario in which Iran gives up its opposition to Israel completely. Uh, or, or its antagonism toward the Gulf, uh, you know, so entirely as to become a satellite of the UAE or Saudi Arabia. And Ansar Allah follows in turn. Uh, it has its own goals, its own 
ideology. It has its own priorities that are very much in line with Iran, but are not tied to it, uh, you know, as a, as a, as a buoy would be. Yeah, and so now we can talk about the response to the assault on Gaza by Israel uh, specifically. You know, just historicize folks the uh, the the, um, the the sort of warnings made by the Houthis and uh, um, how this has sort of escalated. I mean, there there has been a clear telegraphing by um, the Yemenis what they were going to do, how they were going to do it. Um, what specifically it was in response to. I mean, in October 10th, I believe, they first established the red lines that would be passed. Um, America and Israel went over those red lines. So um, about a few weeks later, they start firing missiles at Israel. Then they expand that and they say that if this continues, we're going to start targeting Israeli ships uh, in the Red Sea. They start doing that. If this continues, we'll start targeting any ships heading to Israeli ports. And then the assault doesn't stop, so they keep doing that. Um, at every single stage, they've announced what they're going to do. And yet, I mean, I understand why um, the United States, the American media um, has to not address this, because to do so would be to ask questions that they're not prepared to deal with. But it's strange when Gaza is not even brought up in these discussions, despite the fact that it is the only publicized reason as to why these things are happening. Like, oh, like, uh, are, are we familiar with um, uh, Yahya Sari? He's the uh, the Houthis. He's the, he's the spokesman that does the Yemeni armed forces statements. He, he's really loud. He like kind of yells these things. Um, that's, I think, why people most known for in every single statement he makes it is that he mentions gaza as much as he is describing the actions that are being taken by yemen um in every speech made by the leader of ansar law gaza is the the main topic of discussion and forms everything else um they're not hiding this from anybody they, they they're saying it very clearly in both arabic and english and it's not it's not an obfuscation um by any means no i mean i i just wanted to like double down on that because like one thing about the Biden administration since the beginning of uh the uh the bombing campaign in gaza by israel has been this just like just flat out denying of reality and we've had statements from high-ranking Biden administration officials saying like, oh, you know, a ceasefire and ending to the bombing campaign in Gaza wouldn't stop what uh, what the Houthis are doing, um, which is just uh, it's just truly amazing. And I guess it's sort of just hoping that a lot of people have no conception or access to information outside of what is coming from the White House. Frankly, No, I, I see I see those same things that, that you're seeing and I just can't like. They, OK, you say it that makes you feel crazy. Sorry. Stop. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're like, like, you're like, okay, they're not going to stop this. So what? They're okay. There are two possibilities here, and we can we can debate until the the, right. the universe burns up about what they are. Okay, so the Houthis, which stopped firing on Israel when the ceasefire happened, people forget this. They they abided by the terms of the ceasefire because that's what they were saying all along that they want to bring this to a ceasefire. But okay, so 
what Biden pushes for a ceasefire and the Yemeni stop because that's what they say they're going to do, or they just never stop. They continue to antagonize the largest navy army in the entire world. What in in perpetuity? Like n there is no, <laughs> no one truly like no country on earth is is going to abide by that. Like are are you the the only reason you would push this viewpoint is if you are arguing that you know you shouldn't even engage with the idea of a ceasefire in Gaza or or anything because I don't know I. I we yeah. have to we have to constantly engage with quote unquote seasoned Yemen observers who don't actually want to to listen to what the Yemenis themselves are saying because that would I guess jeopardize preconceived notions. Mm. Right. It's like you go, okay, you, you, you pressure Israel to stop this. And let's say you do that. And they, and yeah, like you say, the Houthis just continue to, um, uh, challenge shipping in the Red Sea. Well, congratulations. You now have a great issue with which to build a global coalition <laughs> against the Houthis. So like, you know, there you go. Uh, you know, get out of your own way on that. And I just think we have to foreground the, as you put like the coalition of starvers, what's going on right now in Gaza, which is mass starvation. And you see people justifying um, uh, executive power to bomb another country because prices might go up because of attacks on shipping without recognizing any sort of like h horrific irony uh, with that. No, like the, the statement that Biden put out right after the first wave of airstrikes happened, um, uh, the Washington Post reporter uh, Evan Hill also noted this, that I think this is the first time in human history where delays in product shipping times were directly mentioned in a White House official statement mm. for a military strike. Um, like seven Yemeni soldiers in the armed forces were killed so that Biden would not have to deal with uh, another supply chain crisis because everybody was angry about that um, back in like 2021, 2022. Um, it, it's it's an incredible amount of cynicism that I, I, I just, I, I'm kind of in awe at how badly it's been bungled in this way because they can't, they can't address again. They can't address what's what's at the heart of it because that that's too mm -hmm. difficult. That that raises too many questions about the fact that it's a bipartisan opinion that. A ceasefire in Gaza is preferable to the current situation. So they can't talk about the fact that they want a ceasefire to happen because then, well, then why are we bombing them if there's a solution that is being presented here? Um, so either they don't address it or in the UK's case, they talk about how, well, they have to, they then, they mention Gaza, but then they say that uh, Gaza is uh, too far away. Uh, it, it's too far away for Yemen to be possibly concerned with this is a separate issue there are separate motivations that have to be addressed and therefore the these situations are distinct and they don't need to be pressured in that way i mean there is an easy way out of this right mm -hmm. there there is a clear and present way out of this that we're still i mean 104 days on we're still dilly-dallying it around as if nobody has thought of this or or even uh, uh, considered it seriously. Uh, I, I don't understand that. 
So, so just, just really quick, and, and it's fine if you don't have an answer to this because we didn't ask you this beforehand, but you mentioned some of the, the kind of voices in the media um, who sort of speak for Yemeni voices or speak about Yemen a lot. Um, you know, it, it, how would you categorize like what that's been like in, in, in American media? Is it sort of similar to like how there's a lot of people who get a lot of airtime in the U.S. to talk about Iran and like basically what they want to do with Iran is for the United States to invade um, and, uh, you know. And, and, you know, destroy the country. Is that the kind of case or is it just not something that's being covered about, um, you know, with, with those kind of voices in the U.S.? Uh, I actually did not hear the first half of your question. It bugged out. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, I was just I was just asking <clears throat> um, when it comes to people who are speaking about um, Yemen and, and the Houthis right now and maybe like American media. Um, who sort of speaks from some place of expertise, whether or not they might be from the region or uh, they might be like, quote, unquote, experts on it is, uh, you know, I, I was just wondering if you had any sense of like the quality of the discourse that we've been getting in American um, and English speaking media talking about this uh, so far. I mean, from what I've seen, it's more level headed than what you're when you were talking about where. People are just braying about how we should invade Iran, how we should be prepared mm -hmm. to do like these massive military strikes on this major regional player. I think people more or less get that straight up invading Yemen is not on the table on any planet. Um, but you still see this idea primarily pushed by uh, opinion writers um, like like Eli Lake, for example, um, <laughs> mm -hmm. when he when uh, when the Houthis, I think, were first starting to like really get on America's radar, he was talking about how we have to go in and we have to just bomb all of their facilities and their and their weapons factories and their and their missile launchers. Um, you know, why aren't we doing that? As if no one has ever tried to do this before in the history of the world. Um, <laughs> there's not a sense that I could detect of trying to do something more severe than what was being tried before but it's still this inanity of looking back at for at the past i mean jesus christ what nine years since since the fall of sana'a and thinking okay we'll do what the saudis did but we'll do it better this time i mm -hmm. there, there's again there are different ways of going about this and solving this problem, but the United States and its backers in the media and its backers uh, in the defense uh, sector, they don't want to engage with them. I don't. Mm. Well, well, on that, I mean, just to put some clarity on it, I mean, could you could you sort of establish like um, the strikes that are coming uh, from the from the Houthis? Um, and, and, and sort of categorize, you know, what these have been and then the, the American uh, response so far? I mean, the Houthis at the moment, uh, they've uh, been striking uh, ships, I, I want to say about um, around like maybe 30 at this point. There have been 30 total attacks. Um, these have not been sh strikes that have been meant to sink these ships. Uh, mm. They're mainly just meant to cause damage and uh, are only sent after multiple warnings have been issued. Uh, to my knowledge, the only ship that they seized was the first one that they ever attacked, which was the Galaxy Leader. And that was more or less just to make a point. I mean, there was no cargo on that ship, basically no cargo on that ship. Um, wasn't exactly well defended. 
Um, and it's it was good propaganda in order for a Yemeni helicopter to drop down on a ship and then fighters and Palestinian flag headbands come out and they seize the ship that has Israeli connections. Um, no one has died. Uh, no one has been, to my knowledge, injured or shot during any one of these. Um, in fact, actually, come to think of it, I think more uh, U.S. soldiers might have died in this venture because there was a case where two Navy SEALs are now missing because they tried to board uh, what they say was a weapons shipment boat toward the Houthis. Um, no, I mean, th these are not meant to, these are, these attacks are meant to dissuade ships that have Israeli connections from going through the Red Sea. They're not meant to sink them. They're not meant to take all of the cargo. Um, this is the problem with the characterization of this being piracy or, mm -hmm. or explicitly meant to, to acquire wealth, because if that were the case, they would attempt more ship seizures. They would specifically target ships that had a lot of cargo on them. And that is not what they've been doing, uh, even though they possess the information that would allow them to make these decisions. You know, I have to ask, uh, in our in our uh, neck of the woods, I don't know if you saw, but um, Hassan Piker uh, over at Twitch had a young 19-year-old uh, uh, Yemeni uh, kid on um, who's been on TikTok in one of these boats. Um, I'm curious if you saw that and had a reaction um, to that. Because um, personally, like, I, I think it's great to uh, use of a platform to humanize people like this. Um, and then we can also get to maybe um, anti-Semitism and a discussion of uh, how to historicize and understand that. But I'm curious if you saw that, um, Seamus, and what your reaction to that was. Sure, I did. Um, I think the... The reaction to it was was very interesting. It was obviously very centered around the fact that uh, this guy's hot and uh, mm -hmm, yeah. it's a hot guy uh, going around this um, this seized ship, and it humanizes the Yemenis uh, that they also have uh, gorgeous looking people. Um, but I did see the discussion, and I did see some tweets that he posted, and I really admired. Um, the way that he spoke and in particular um his lack of his seemingly entire lack of focus on himself and more his focus like the way he, the like this man was absolutely entitled fully entitled to take advantage of all the female attention that was being brought his way and instead he posted about the fact that himself is not the priority like you should all be focusing on palestine um that that i think uh was very admirable yeah yeah and uh, and so a, a lot of folks uh dug up some of his uh, old social media stuff and found a uh, 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 i think an instagram post of him and i think he says the word jew i, I don't know if it's son of a jew or in a way and you know there's these um in the houthi movement they also i believe have certain um slogans or or sayings that include uh anti-semitic or what could be conveyed anti-semitic i'm curious like you know, and I've also seen defenses like saying, oh, you could find Africans that were anti-French too. This is a product of a uh, colonial structure. I'm curious how we should look at this anti-Semitism here and what relevance that has toward this. Um, I think there are, there are subtleties to it, but I would not fall into the trap of 
using explanations as justifications. Um, mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. the kind of anti, like <clears throat> the anti-Semitism here is informed by the anti-Zionism, whereas in the case of a Nazi or of, or of a fascist, uh, it would be other, it would be the other way around, right? Um, like the anti-Semitism that is displayed here is not the way in which we would recognize it, in which there's discussion of uh, Jewish DNA or, um, you know, people mixing with, with other races. That's really not it. Um, but it's still a hatred of Jews that is defined by a almost complete lack of contact um, with Jews as a people. Um, mm -hmm. We in our daily lives encounter Jewish people of all sorts all the time. Uh, they don't. They primarily encounter Jews through the lens of Israel, which defines itself as a state of the Jews for the Jews and, and defines its actions through serving the Jewish community. And when Arabs grow up and their experience of Judaism is defined by this, that's the opinion that sometimes forms. And I don't make I, I, I don't make this distinction again, I don't make this distinction as justification, but mm -hmm. I make it so that I emphasize that this is a viewpoint that can be changed and I think is also to some degree is actually changing with some people. Um, I'll, I'll take a I'll take a top level example. Um, Muhammad mm -hmm. al-Bukhaiti, who is a Houthi spokesman, which many of you probably have seen on Twitter, um, he once at one point talked about how supporters of Yemen should not use anti-Semitic slurs because there are now anti-Zionist Jews who are allies in this movement and we shouldn't try and um, alienate these people. Um, the Yemeni kid that you were talking about, um, when the subject of anti-Zionist Jews is brought up, he fully said, like, anybody who is anti-Zionist is an ally of mine. I'm paraphrasing. Um, yeah. With Palestinians, um, the late uh, Rafa'at uh, al-Arir, um, mm -hmm. he grew up having the same sort of hatred of Jewish people, but you know, as a, as a citizen of Gaza. And he described in 2014, when he went to America for the first time, he met anti-Zionist Jews for the first time, and that completely opened his eyes because he could never conceive of a possibility of there being Jews who were aligned with his cause. Um, this is why I think the significant presence of anti-Zionist Jews, like in Palestine protests, is so important. It's brought anti-Zionist Jews to the forefront of uh, Arab media and Iranian media in ways that I've never seen before. And when people are able to see that there are Jewish people who agree with their liberation and agree with uh, their views on freedom, um, that that is what changes people's opinions. And that's what makes them more nuanced. And I think uh, that's a really good thing. Yeah, I mean, I'll just say, you know, as somebody who I produce majority report, Sam Cedar's uh, Jewish, 
to see comment sections when we have uh, guests on talking about what's going on in Gaza, um, you know, maybe putting it a little bit clumsily, but the thankfulness uh, with which um, people express, you know, just ability to like see reality because, you know, we talk about how maddening it is to hear our government, you know, people have been seeing this for a long time. Uh, and, and yeah, I, 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 I appreciate that point. Cause I do think that is a, a cause for maybe hope as, you know, some of the most horrific scenes, you know, at least since I've been doing this mm -hmm. professionally, uh, uh, come in. David, is there anything else you wanted to add before we let James go? Yeah, I mean, I, I did just sort of want to end and, you know, and, and talk about the the very real threat of this sort of, you know, exploding and getting worse than it already is, um, you know, the potential of any kind right. of, of regional conflict. I mean, you know, obviously, the, the, these are really difficult times. There's a lot of things that are that are moving. It does encourage a sense of sensationalism generally, um, but I have to admit that, like, I've been fairly frightened as you're seeing, um, you know, more American activity that's just, you know, something happening um, that might not even be intended that could sort of, you know, light up a, you know, powder keg to use the cliche. Um, but I'm curious what your kind of feelings are on the potential of, you know, any expansion of, of, of conflict from this. <sighs> Um, <laughs> I'm not, why well, I, I have to, and, and I'm not going to ask you to predict the future, but I, I, I guess no, more no, than no, anything, no, no, it's no. just like, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm making a big side cause, um, I'm, I'm here in Beirut and that I think kind of forces mm. a sort of shift of perspective. I'm, I'm not horribly fatalistic to the point where I've already kind of consigned myself to, oh, this is going to happen and this is going to happen. Um, but I think the American inaction at this point has made the expansion of this war um much much greater than it otherwise would have been uh under a different i mean even under a different democratic president biden is a uniquely situated um in such a way that his 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 ascription to the cult of israel and and what it can do and what it needs to do is beyond what most presidents uh would would have would have done uh would have ascribed to um, I think some sort of conflict in Lebanon is probably imminent. Um, mm -hmm. I think the expansion of the air campaign in Yemen is imminent. Um, I think in regards to Iran, I don't think an invasion is on the table, but I think military action in some way is probably somewhere on the horizon. I mean, things are already heating up between them and Pakistan with, uh, trading airstrikes and, this need within the Iranian society to confront terrorism, um, that it, you know, after the ISIS attack on Kerman, they're talking, they, you know, they struck Syria, they struck, uh, Iraq. Um, like this is, I think the most volatile that the Middle East has ever been certainly in my lifetime, because I'm not old. Um, but you talk to analysts, you talk to other people, you know, who are far older than me and they have very much the same opinion. Um, this is something that has been forced, you know, kind of below the surface by successive American administrations for decades. And now it's finally risen to the surface and I don't think they know how to push it back down. Um, yeah, that's my fear. Yeah. Well, folks, um, people should check out, uh, and we'll put a link to this, um, uh, Seamus-MalikFzali.com, um, uh, your sub stack. Uh, anywhere else people should follow you, Seamus? 
Uh, just on Twitter. I, I think that's all right by me. Seamus underscore Malik. Awesome. All right, Seamus, thank you so much. I uh, really appreciate it. Thank you all. Yeah, I mean, folks, if you are um, still on Twitter and uh, for some reason, like I am, you're a sicko, basically, um, and aren't following Seamus, like, I mean, fucking up. You're unmuted, David. <clears throat> no, I was just saying, very glad to have him on the program, and I agree completely. Also, is it just me or did your lighting situation entirely kind of vibe much? shift? I had a vibe shift. We're getting ready for the post game, you know? Well, that's the thing is, see, I am very pro mood lighting. Uh, I'm, if I come into the office and either Sam or Emma or Bradley has turned on the overhead lighting, that's straight off. I can't overhead Ooh, lighting. Am yeah, I being interrogated? Yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't, I can't handle overhead lighting. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's a pretty on. normal one to be against. I feel yeah. like that is like one of those things where like some people can't hear certain pitches. Right. Um, yeah. It's also not being I able to recognize that like super bright white light over your head is ugly as hell and miserable. Um, there's a real deficiency if you can't recognize it. That's a big problem. See, I, I, I'm, I'm somewhat relieved to hear you say it. Cause I had been pathologizing myself for it because I'd hear uh, one, I'm listening to a podcast by a guy who's diagnosed with ADD at like <laughs> 45. And now I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> there are certain things that I'm like, oh yeah, I definitely. And but one of the things they say is like dark rooms are much better for focus and that sort of thing. And I wonder is like, oh, is this another thing? Just like my inability to keep my leg still. <laughs> um, mm. Another sign that of, of some sort of uh, attention deficit. Because um, I, I basically do like, I like the majority of Port Studio. I like it to be a uh, Sam and Emma lit up and me and Bradley in complete darkness. In the dark, um, yeah. Just lit up by the monitors, basically. <laughs> and that gets in the way of, you know, we're eventually going to try to get us on camera more. And uh, I'm just there, like, just lit up only by a giant blue monitor, um, you know. Anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> That's a little bit of a sideshow. Um, <laughs> before we get too post-gamey, let's talk a little bit more about the Gaza situation and mm -hmm. uh, our president. How do you want to dig into this, um, David? Should we start with the question that liberals are having a tough time answering? Yeah, I think that makes sense. So this was posted by, I think it was like a Ukraine flag in the um, thing, which I, I do say I, I do, I, there are plenty of people in, in, in our audience particularly who have both Palestinian and Ukrainian flags in. So I don't want to insult those people. There is There are Ukraine flag people with horrible politics. And one of those is like, well, why do we have to care about, or what do we say to this voter who uh, is a little bit upset about um, what our president is supporting in Palestine. And uh, here is this. I thought I um, had uploaded this, but I guess uh, maybe I can't see it. So I'll play it from uh, uh, this here. One second. Is that coming? It's not playing if that's what you're trying to do. I can see no, it. Oh, yeah. 
Hold on one second. I need, David, you just give me a second. I'm going to refresh here because I think I need to refresh. Before this video. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, I mean, I, people know what this video is going to be. Probably if you haven't seen it, um, you'll see it in just a second. But I mean, it's pretty nasty the way that I think a lot of people are in, reacting to what I was saying about before we went live is that saying that, hey, I can't support, um, I can't vote for somebody who is aiding and betting a genocide and mass slaughter of human beings. Um, it's a very normal human position to take, right? You can have qualms and debate about things, um, but that's a very, very typical and moral and basic position. Um, and the shock and anger uh, that we get from a lot of folks out there around this um, is, is truly something... Uh, truly something else. And I don't think it's going to work well for them. Um, it's amazing that they're upholding it because it was ridiculous back in, in the day. <clears throat> oh man, we got a lot of mats on screen now. Uh, Matt, are you not getting through here? Well, that's messing me up a lot. Um, why don't you give me one second to figure out what's going on with Matt? Because he's got all this on his, his something going on in his computer. And if not, I'll come back myself. Um, just give me one second to text him and see what's going on. Okay, there we go. I don't know. Yeah, I saw. I came back and I saw I was already here. That was a bit of a scary thing. Um, I did. I, I do have that video also. Here is the uh, thing that people are having a tough time reacting to. Saba, you said reproductive rights are a huge factor for you, but that you probably won't vote for President Biden. I think it would be hypocritical of me to use reproductive rights as a way to justify voting for Biden when Biden is aiding and sending military aid to Israel, which is airstriking Gaza and blocking humanitarian aids, leading to women there who are pregnant, um, either getting C-sections without anesthesia, not being able to be provided with pre- I mean, how much more does she need to say? Exactly, like put your money where your mouth is. The this is the shift that the Democratic Party has gone on since I have been in adulthood. Uh, the Obama years, which was yes we can, and now Joe Biden, which is we know, but we know that you know this is slaughter going on. But the but the answer is okay. Yeah, actually, we're going to do what we can as a global power to stop that. And we're going to, I mean, they say restore Roe. I'm not super happy with that framing itself. I think that's kind of dead in the water, but okay, sure. Um, uh, that's what you say. But, you know, if you're going to say, actually, uh, don't believe your lying eyes uh, and Amnesty International and, you know, um, uh, Medicine Sans Frontiers, don't don't believe all those people. Believe Benjamin Netanyahu, and actually don't believe Benjamin Netanyahu because Joe Biden says what Benjamin Netanyahu keeps repeating about not wanting a Palestinian state at all. He's not actually saying that this shit isn't going to work. And I don't know what kind of conversations that Democrats are having in you know 
that make them think like maybe we'll be able to wait this out. There's this truism that has been said like foreign policy doesn't matter. And it's true. People can't place shit on maps. You know, whether they're just voters or streamers mm. or whoever. They don't know where shit is on a map. But I remember why Obama beat Hillary. And I don't think it was just because he was cool. I think it was they had his position on Iraq. And like the Vietnam War, that played a pretty big thing. Like this is, and in, in like, I remember early in the thing, it's like, Bernie, what's, what's Bernie doing that's justifying him undermining the calls for ceasefire by the international progressives? Is it some action on student loans? Because that's not... Mm -hmm. Even so, even when you zoom in and say, actually, this would help people's lives in America to a significant level and zoom in and say like, yeah, even the people who would disproportionately benefit, it'd be great. It's still fucking disgusting to have a party say, do that, take that, which hasn't been actually followed through on by the Biden administration, but even say it had. Uh, take that while we continue to support what's going on in Palestine. Mm -hmm. In Gaza, it's disgusting. And yeah, like, how do you talk to them? You, you don't continue to help the bombing of Gaza, and then think you can talk to people with a conscience. I mean, what 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 I think is actually disgusting about this is how naked it is, right? So, like, for example, like, there's an argument that you get from some kind of like let's call them third world just Maoist, like super online people who'll be like, oh, all Americans are sort of complicit in imperialism, um, you know. And, you know, basically, like, uh, we don't support, like, higher wages or better lives for Americans because they're all sort of complicit in, 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 in global imperialism. I find that to be a really nasty anti-human argument, right? Um, especially because, like, you know, normal people don't make decisions like that. Normal people aren't the ones calling the shots, right? So I've always rejected and found that to be a false argument. But literally what we're hearing and seeing right now is people saying, hey – who do you want, you know, or will you support Joe Biden in the upcoming election? People are saying, hey, I can't vote for somebody who is doing what they are doing in Gaza. And people are saying, well, you might not like him slaughtering tens of thousands of people participating in that slaughter, supporting this this government as it continues to, to, to try to um, exterminate and expel a large population of people. You might not like that, but um, yeah, do you want uh, th these kind of rights at home? Do you want these kind of social rights? Do you want you know student loan forgiveness, all this kind of stuff? I mean, what a nasty deal uh, to sit there and actually put on the table. And I don't think people realize what it is, what they're saying um, when they say shit like that. But when you were saying to somebody that, hey, you have to um, – Oh yeah, you might not be happy with the with the genocide, but you know maybe just put that to aside for a little bit and think about this. You're actually encouraging people to make a kind of moral calculus of how much genocide, how much slaughter um, will you accept over here for maybe a good thing or prevent something bad from happening over here, which is a disgusting, false uh, choice. Um, and I think that like to sit here and act like um, it's all going to be fine and dandy, right? That it's a good thing, for example. Um, for the Democrats to not have any kind of political punishment. Because here's, what's, here's what will happen five, ten years down the line, right? Yeah, no one's going to win anything from not supporting Joe Biden for president, right? That's a personal decision, and Matt and I have talked about that to the death, and I don't want to fucking get into it anymore, right? But I will tell you one thing. I think it'd be really, really, I think it would send a really, really bad message, not even to the Democratic Party, but to the globe, to ourselves as Americans, is if Joe Biden can oversee something like this, and there, it doesn't register 
politically for him, right? Again, who cares yeah. about the Democrats and what lessons they take from it? I'm actually just saying straight up in terms of like American history as an American, if Joe Biden can do something like this and it doesn't register at all on the political scene, that's a really nasty indictment of Americans' moral character. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's true, but I also think like, th and that's going to be the mission if Biden loses, uh, particularly if he loses because of young people to uh, author that as, you know, the understanding of the history uh, that, you know, that is not the lesson, like that authorship was not, we were not able to do that with 2016, for instance, people mm -hmm. don't look back at that to the extent we want them to, to say like, oh, people were upset about the economy about being left behind. Um, and instead it's actually people were sexist <laughs> and mm -hmm. uh, racist uh, and revolted. Um, and so, and so like, I, I, I agree. I just like genuinely like the thing is, is like, if you want, well, how do you talk to that voter? How, how should AOC have responded? She should have said, look, we had, had it with Biden. Uh, he's a problem. And like, as, as I agree with Seamus, like even for a demo, a, a, a replacement level, democratic presidential candidate biden is more zionist uh and and so like you you can't you cannot say you'd hit it the the thing is is like there's one party um that has anybody calling for ceasefires actually tom don't want to forget thomas massey uh, shout out Thomas Massey um, on the Republican side but you you can't you can't justify the biden thing other than uh, a look, pick the devil, you know, and mm -hmm. like, like if you're actually going to talk about electoral politics, but to that, what that young lady said in that interview, I think is exactly right. Like you don't even ask for my vote until you stop this. And what mm -hmm. I do on election day, like who gives a shit? Like, like this is an individual we're trying to make a, the, the, the corporate media wants to make a morality tail out of this so that liberals can feel superior that look at i've done the numbers on the utilitarian calculus mm -hmm. and it's like that isn't really going to help um what people actually care about right now which is not what's going to happen in november later this year but how many uh, tens of thousands of palestinians are going to die before joe biden pulls his finger out no and I, sorry i didn't mean to cut you off Matt. i just have a question for our older audience members out there to maybe fill me in did this whole kind of moralizing about uh, third party voting, was that something that preceded 2000 or did that start in 2000? Um, because that is, I think that is something that is like integral uh, to a lot of like liberals worldview politically. And I just, you know, yeah. I'm just curious for some of our, uh, you know, folks who, who had experience. Yeah. Elections My gut would I, be mm -hmm. Nader was the first big, blow up of that but the precursor was uh left, Perot. right yeah i was about to say right <clears throat> anyway someone let us know but keep going man i'm sorry well so i mean just kind of on the same tip um nathaniel reed at reed reports con congressional correspondent for scripps news uh had an interesting thread here uh he's in manassas virginia mm. um and uh i'll just make myself big here um, if I could, uh, I can't grab that. Um, big applause for second, uh, gentleman, Doug Emhoff and Flotus, uh, Joe Biden, who are the first speakers today. Okay. Everything good so far. Booze for Emhoff's mention of Trump. Okay. It's a democratic event. Flotus, we have to fight, blah, blah, blah. Uh, huge applause for VP Harris, yada, yada. Um, okay. Now 
um, is when it gets interesting. Biden takes the stage. In the first minutes of President Biden's remarks, eight separate pro-Palestine protesters have disrupted his speech. Crowd has broken into chance of four more years each time. They feel deeply, Biden says, without addressing them directly. Later quips, this could go on for a while. Um, and as this goes on, you'll see nine, ten. Please don't jump, Biden jokes, as the latest protester was sitting in a balcony seat. Um, Eleven, twelve, genocide Joe has got to go. Thirteen, independent disruptions, as this person gets let out. Uh, Biden, who stopped paying attention to protesters at the first half of dozen speeches, is flanked by Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, and Doug Emhoff. Let's spread the faith, Biden says, to a jubilant crowd of campaign invitees. Uh, yeah, I wonder how uh, if that was a paid event um, to get into. But good for those people. And um, I mean, I, 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 I'm very heartened to see that that many and it can be that coordinated and do it that independent that way in Manassas, Virginia, which I would not expect to be a hotbed of. Um, but maybe I'm just that's just my impression of or wrong impression of Virginia um, of pro-Palestinian activism. Um yeah, you have to disrupt this guy. And you know what? We've played an example of how you can respond to that thing very easily with Sean Fain. We just say, you're right. There should be a ceasefire, <laughs> which is also a thing like even American presidents have fucking said before. Uh, mm. And that they aren't now. It shouldn't be recognized as, oh, this is just the Zionist America uh, supporting Israel as they always do. It's actually more of an emergency than that. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that This is actually a little bit out of step with the extent to which like Bush would say, hey, chill out. Um, like I know some IDF guys got killed. You can't just, you know, level uh, apartments because we have our own shit. We would like to agenda. We would like to uh, um, pursue. Biden is throwing the chips in in a way that it, like, that deserves an all hands deck approach. So that's mm -hmm. why I'm not, um, you know, vetting uh, the Houthis line by line. Um, before I say, hey, you know what? Maybe listen to what they say about uh, what's going on in Gaza and see if that has the intended effect before deciding, oh, actually, let's maybe try to solve yet another problem uh, with missiles. Um, and uh, also why any fucking Democrat, like saying, chanting four more years to people that have taken it upon themselves to speak out uh, against this right now, you've lost your soul. You've, you've like, there is no difference between you and the MAGA uh, uh, Republicans that you hate so much, man. Like, mm. it, you're every bit as fascist, if you want to use that term, as they are. I think you put it right, Matt. I mean, what else is there to say? I mean, Joe Biden should be disrupted every word that he speaks. Um, the, the, the request to show up and support the Democratic Party yet again, after all that they've done. Uh, the first response should always be like, well, when are they going to end uh, their support for the mass slaughter in Gaza? Um, and hold that line. I mean, just don't let them do this kind of um, mental wrestling move that they're trying to do um, by talking about anything other than uh, what is happening in Gaza, where Joe Biden has uh, direct influence and ability uh, to at least, if nothing else, uh, stop providing weapons that are being used to kill children. Um, yeah, in, in it's just interesting that to a Democratic Party that has the virtue of having, having held power for a significant portion of the last few decades, um, Israel, Palestine, and Israel's um, disproportionate just assault 
um, is just like, oh, there's nothing we can do. We, there's no, and to a little group in Yemen, mm-hmm. that's a giant opportunity. It's just interesting how certain things can be opportunities to certain and, you know, there's just nothing that can be done um, to the most powerful groups on earth. It's, 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 it's almost hard to believe. Mm-hmm. Well, folks, uh, we're going to pop over to the post game patreon.com slash left reckoning and come hang out with us. We'll be taking some calls and questions uh, from the audience. Uh, so come over there, support us. If you want that excellent hoodie or crew neck that Matt is wearing right there, the fence cutter sweatshirt that does help us out a lot. And we're doing free shipping on all of our merch right now with the code ride on. Uh, you can get that left reckoning.com slash store. Appreciate everybody uh, for hanging out with us this evening. It's not over. Come join us in the post game. Uh, we'll be there in about 10, 15 minutes. So see you soon. Peace.